me say a word about this series that's coming up starting next week. Um, it's interesting, a, a lot of people's perspective on the church, and oftentimes rightly so, is that uh, we ask people, first of all, to behave like we want them to behave, and then to believe the way we want them to believe, and if they do those things, then they can belong. And yet, uh, Jesus' ministry was exactly the opposite. Jesus said, I don't care where you are, don't, know who, don't care who you are, what you're doing, tax collector, prostitute, doesn't matter, you can follow me. Follow me and belong in my community. And over time, people, after they followed, came to believe in him. And then as they came to believe, they didn't behave, but they became what God called them to be. And so we're going to talk about what it means to be a church uh, that responds and, and reflects the way Jesus did ministry. But this week, we're going to finish out our series on doubt. Last week, we talked about the fact that the issue is not whether or not you will have doubt. You will. The question is, what do you do with those doubts? Actually, last week, if you weren't here, we did a survey. I just asked for a show of hands. How many people are, are here that are committed Christians, they're committed Christ followers? You'd say, I've been a Christian for, you know, totally sold out to God, and I've been a Christian for more than 10 years. And about half the, and you still have doubts and questions and significant periods in your life where you, where you doubt God, and half the hands raised. And hopefully, if you're here and you're maybe seeking or asking questions or, or uh, you're not sure how you, if you believe in the whole God thing, hopefully that's good news for you. Because I think sometimes we think, I've got to get all my questions and all my, my doubts dealt with before I, I can come to God. And that's just not, simply not the case. God is a big boy and he can handle our doubts and questions. The reality is, it is not possible not to have doubts. I know it's a double negative. You're not supposed to use double negatives, but it's not possible not to have doubts. You will have doubts. The question is, what do you do with those doubts? And last week we learned that what you do is you, you carry them with you as you follow Christ because you will have doubts. And our doubts are no reason to walk away from the faith. We just carry them with, them, with us. In fact, we learned that if you walk away from God, you have to, to consider your options. I mean, we walk toward something else. When we walk away from God, we, we have to ask, to whom or to what shall I go? And the problem is many of us had doubts and questions at one time in our life. We had a season of doubt or question and we walked away from God, but we didn't recognize what we were walking toward. And many of us, are, this is our story that months or years later, we wander back to Christianity and you know what? We have the same doubts and the same questions we had when we left. It didn't fix anything. But we all say to ourselves, you know, I'm not going to do that again because we have wounds and pain and scars from that season that we were away. So we, we realize over time that doubts are a part of our faith. The question is not whether we will have them. We will have them. It is what, what do we do with our doubts. This week we're going to finish our series on doubt. We're going to look at a really interesting passage in Matthew chapter 11. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to open that up. If you don't have your Bible, um, you can uh, pull a little insert out of the bulletin and, and just kind of put your finger there for a second. We're going to come back to it in a minute. But this week we're going to talk about situations in life that we experience where doubts loom large. All of us have doubts, all of us have questions at times, but there are situations, there are environments, there are experiences in our lives where maybe God doesn't show up the way we think he should, or we're dealing with pain or difficulty and we just say, God, are you there? Are you listening? Do you even care? And our doubts, which are normally there, they, they become bigger and they become, more, they, they loom larger. Or maybe you're in a situation where your faith is going to cost you something. You have to give up something in, in response to your faith. And in those seasons, doubt is huge. I was on an airplane this week and I was reading Newsweek magazine and there was an article in it about a new book coming out entitled, Can Suffering Kill God? And I thought that's the question, isn't it? When we're going through difficult seasons, difficult times, challenging, painful seasons of our life, 
Those are the times we question, God, are you there? Are you, are you listening? Do you care? Last week, I, I mentioned that during, after the Saturday service last week, I uh, talked to a gal down front, um, and I thought about her and actually prayed for her several times this week. She's kind of been on my heart. But she said, you know, after 32 years of, of my faith, she said, this last week, I was, the first time in my life, I really can seriously considered just chucking it all because of this pain that she's dealing with, with three grown children, her three grown children in her life. And, and that's the question. What do we do with our doubts when our faith is going to cost us something or where God doesn't show up and, and do the things that we think he would do if he loved us? When we're in the midst of pain or in the midst of struggle. Now the story we're going to look at this week is a really interesting story. Let me give you a little background. This is back in the time of Jesus and there's a guy named King Herod known as Herod the Great who was the ruler of the Israelites. And let me give you, a, I got a picture of him. There he is. Um, he, I think he permed his beard. He's a sharp looking guy. But anyway, um, now, Herod was appointed by Rome uh, to rule Israel. He was a great builder. He built uh, lots of things, including uh, Herod's temple, which was the temple that existed when Jesus uh, was alive. Rome installed him, and his, basically his job was, he was a puppet. His job was to keep the taxes coming and keep the peace. And so as long as the money kept rolling into Rome, and as long as there was peace, he could stay in power. But, but Herod was not well liked by the people of Israel. First of all, he was kind of a nut job, and that's just not me saying that. Secular historians have pointed that out. He was also uh, not Jewish. He was half Jewish, and so the Jewish people resented the fact that he was their ruler. But he was, he was crazy. He was obsessed with power, so much so that at one point he murdered his wife because he considered her a threat to his throne. And other, at, at different points, he murdered three of his own children because he was concerned. He thought that they were a threat to his, his throne. And at one point, he even murdered his mother-in-law, which some of you are like, well, I don't see what's really wrong with that. But <laughs> on top of everything else, that was a big deal. Herod was the one, if you recall the Christmas story, who sent the soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the baby boys two years and younger. And, you know, the wise men show up, and they say there's a star that was in the east, and it was directing us to come to the next king of the Jews. And Herod says, go, go find him and tell me where it is, and then I can go and worship him. But the text says he didn't really want to worship him. He was afraid, afraid for his throne. I mean, Herod was an old guy at that point. The, you know, babies, what, what were the odds they were going to grow up and be king by the time he was dead and gone anyway? But he was crazy. He was obsessed with his own power and protecting it. He was also very, very hated by the Jewish people in his day. And he knew he was hated. So when he was about to die, when he was on his deathbed, he gave the order to have gathered up a number of Jewish leaders, people he thought could maybe vie for his throne. And um, he, he had them all arrested and taken to the city of Jericho. Then he gave the orders to one of his commanders, at the very moment that you hear that I die, I want you to kill all these guys because I want there to be mourning in the country of Israel on the day that I die because he knew nobody would mourn him. So he wanted somebody to mourn. So at the moment he died, the commander released all those prisoners and there was a party in the streets. Herod, ding dong, the wicked Herod's dead. Uh, now Herod did not want his kingdom to go to one person. He thought his greatness was too good and nobody could handle the power that he had. So he split his kingdom into three parts and he left his kingdom to, to three of his sons. And one of his sons is a key player in the story we're going to look at. And his name is Herod Antipas. And he had the, the region of Galilee. I've got a little map to show you. Um, this is uh, northern Sumerian Galilee. This was the region that Herod Antipas was given to rule. He had another son named Herod Archelaus. They all had Herod in, the, in their names, a family name. Um, and he was, he's kind of irrelevant to the story, but he was the favored son. And so he got down here in the 
the main part of Israel with the coastal area in Jerusalem. And then he had a third son named Herod Philip, and he's kind of relevant to the story. And Philip had the east side of the Sea of Galilee in this kind of region in here that he, was, he ruled. Now, you're going to have to kind of hang with me for a second because this is like a soap opera, but let me try to explain this. Um, Herod Philip, the guy that was on the east side, he marries his niece, who is also the niece of Herod Antipas, the one that's over Galilee. They're, the Herod Philip and Herod Antipas are brothers. Herod Philip marries his niece, also the niece of Herod Antipas, and her name was Herodias. Everybody had Herod in their name. Um, and apparently she was stunning. She was beautiful. And Herod Antipas was brought, jealous of his brother, Herod Philip, because of his wife, Herodias. And so on family vacations and things, he tries to kind of convince Herodias to leave his brother, Herod Philip, and go with him, Herod Antipas. Are you with me so far? So it's, it is. It's like a soap opera. So eventually she does. She leaves Herod Philip and she goes with the brother, Herod Antipas, and marries him. And, and so I was trying to think of how this works. So, so Herod Antipas marries his sister-in-law, his brother's wife, who's also his niece. So I don't know if their kids are like quadruple cousins or however that works. But it was very unusual and very offensive to the Jewish people because they were very moral people. And uh, some of you might, might be thinking like, is this story really in the Bible? And it is. You'd be surprised what you find there. You just pick it up and look for it. It's some weird stuff. So anyway, at that same time, there was a preacher in the land named John the Baptist. And he, his basic message was repent and be baptized that the Messiah is here, we got to get right with God. He was a powerful preacher. He had this big following of people. And when he heard that his ruler, Herod Antipas, had married his brother's wife, he started railing against uh, Herod Antipas, by, uh, calling him out by name in his sermons, calling out Herodias by name in his sermons. He was fearless because these guys could have killed him if they wanted to. And every time he'd see the palace or he'd see the motorcade go by or you know, he, you know, there'd be some political rally... He would just rail against this. You married your brother's wife. That's an abomination. He was just hard on him. And Herodias was furious. Now, just a word about John the Baptist. John the Baptist was an amazing guy. His job, he was sent to prepare the way for the Messiah. He played a huge role in the coming of the Messiah. In fact, the Bible says that he was the very first person to recognize Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus shows up to be baptized, and John the Baptist looks at him and said, Behold, that, that, that guy right there is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everybody, you know, hundreds of people in this crowd, they turn and look at Jesus. And Jesus, hello. You know, we don't know what he did, but he's standing there. What you need to know about John the Baptist, he was this amazing guy. He had this huge following. And one time, religious leaders came to him and said, are you the Messiah? You got all these people following you? Are you the one? And he says, no. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie the Messiah's sandals. He was this humble guy. He was this great preacher. He was uh, sent by God to prepare the way for the Messiah. He was the first person to recognize Jesus. He was an amazing guy. Now, Herod Antipas is kind of intrigued by John the Baptist. Even though he's, you know, John the Baptist rails against him, he's kind of intrigued by him. And he's also scared of John the Baptist because he knows he's a holy guy and he's very popular and Antipas is a, you know, a, um, a kind of a consummate politician. He doesn't want to do anything to upset the people. And yet, his wife, Herodias, she's steaming. She's embarrassed, she's the queen, and yet she's become this national joke because of the preaching. You know, and so you can imagine, every night in bed, she's like, you know, why don't you be a man and stand up to this guy, and how long are you going to let John the Baptist talk about me like that? And you got to defend your wife and defend my honor. And so guys, you know, how long are you going to put up with that? So she pressures him and pressures him. And so finally, he learned to do what all good husbands learn to do, speak the key words of husbandry, yes, dear. And uh, he had John the Baptist arrested. 
And so John the Baptist gets arrested and, uh, you know, we don't know if he was just really trying to shut John the Baptist up or he was sh- trying to shut his wife up. He just wanted someone to shut up, I think. And so that's kind of the story. And here's Mark chapter 6. And, and this is just going to be on the screen. Kind of keep your finger in Matthew 11 if you have it that. Uh, For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested. And he had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but she was not able to. Because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. So Herod Antipas knew that John the Baptist was a holy guy. He was righteous. He knew he was in the wrong because of what he'd done to his brother. Uh, but he was under pressure from his wife, so he crumbles to that pressure. He has John the Baptist arrested. And, and just as an aside note, a little more about John the Baptist, you might know that John the Baptist is actually Jesus' cousin, which would be pretty cool, wouldn't it? It'd be like, introduce your cousin. Hi, this is my cousin Jesus. He's Savior of the world. Um, but anyway... Uh, they were cousins, Jesus' mom, Mary, and John's mom, Elizabeth, were sisters. And, and so G- John knew from birth who Jesus was. He'd been told growing up, he'd been told about all the Old Testament prophecies about him, told about the angels that had visited uh, his aunt Mary and, and Uncle Joseph and told him about this baby that was going to be born. I mean, he was confident in who he was. In fact, later, some of John the Baptist's disciples decided to leave John the Baptist and go follow Jesus. And then uh, other disciples of John come to him and say, some of your disciples are leaving you and going to follow this guy, Jesus, and you're losing your popularity, you're losing your influence. And John's response is, that's okay. He must increase, I must decrease. John the Baptist is confident, he's secure, Jesus is the one, he's the Messiah. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I mean, he is certain. And yet now he finds himself in prison. His ministry career is over, he's alone. He's facing the end of his life. He's gone from the peak to the valley. I mean, he was just doing what God called him to do. And yet his life and his career is functionally over because of the whim of a, of a twisted woman and a psycho king. And you know what happens to John? He starts to doubt. I mean, if you read the New Testament, you would think this is the last guy in the New Testament that should have doubts and questions. John the Baptist knew since he was a child who Jesus was. I mean, he was convinced. He said, behold, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. They were cousins. He said, I must decrease so he can increase. He's the one. He's the guy. He's the Messiah. Yet in prison, he's saying, God, are you there? I've been faithful. I've served. I've followed your ways. Is this how I'm going to end up? Is this how I'll be rewarded? Jesus, I've served you. I was loyal to you. I I followed you. I got out of your way so that you could be more successful. Are you going to leave me here? Would the Messiah do that? He had questions. He had doubts. One day, some of uh, John's followers come visit him in prison. And John the Baptist says, guys, I need to get you, uh, get you to take a message to Jesus. And here's what he says, Matthew chapter 11. We're going to look at verse 2. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one, the Messiah, who has to come, or should we expect someone else? And I think the disciples were like, What? I mean, part of the reason that we all think he's the one is because you pointed him out as the one. And now you're not sure? He had these doubts and he had these questions. He had lost certainty. Are you the one or should we look for somebody else? Here's this giant of the faith, a key character in God's plan for the world. And he has doubts and he has questions and he's not sure. That helps me. See, I believe at some point in all of our lives and maybe several times in our lives, because life is hard and it is painful and it's not going to work out the way we think it should all the time. 
And when that happens, we will have doubts and we have questions. And we'll say, where's God? Don't I deserve better than this? I try to be faithful. This is not supposed to happen like this. The gal I talked to last week when she was dealing with her grown children, you know, she said, well, doesn't the Bible say raise a child in the way he should go and when he's old he won't depart from it? Why isn't that working? Why isn't that coming true? See, it's important we understand. We will all experience situations and environments that will create doubt. We will all experience situations and environments that will create doubt. Maybe it's the loss of a job. Maybe it's a crumbling marriage. Maybe it's stuff with our kids. Maybe it's unanswered prayers. Maybe it's health challenges. Seasons where we go, God, where are you? Why aren't you showing up in my life? Other times it's seasons where our faith costs us something. Maybe it's on the business trip where we don't get to go out with the guys and do what they do because of convictions in our faith. Or maybe you're single and you're trying to do the single life thing and you feel like I'm missing out on stuff and you know, I'm trying to be faithful the way God would have me do the single life thing and yet, you know, why, God, why aren't you bringing anybody into my life? There are environments, there are situations that all of us face where we will doubt. And it's not that Christianity is wrong. It's just those doubts and our questions make it seem irrelevant. You know, for John the Baptist, there was nobody in prison arguing him out of his faith. He's just sitting in a jail cell, alone and cold, thinking my life has not turned out the way I thought it would. I'm just not so sure anymore. And when you get in that place, you'll doubt stuff that you never thought you'd doubt before. Now, as an aside, let me share something about doubt with you. This was actually kind of convicting to me, and my, my wife and I were talking about this yesterday. But there is something very self-centered about these kinds of doubts. I'm just going to be honest with myself. I mean, 200,000 people can die in some, some you know, tribal war in Africa, and that's a prayer request. God, that's awful. Be with them. But if I lose my job, I question, you know, does God love me? You know, if my, if my child is sick, I mean, really sick, you know, I mean, if somebody else's child is sick, I might pray fervently, I might fast, but if my child is sick, I'm tempted to walk away from God. Why is it that your issues are a prayer request and my issues can take the legs of my faith out from under me? See, there's something very selfish about our doubts. We don't see it at the time because we're caught up in emotion and we should never say something like that to somebody who's going through a difficult time because that would be extremely unloving and, and, and insensitive. But if we're honest with ourselves, at least with me, I realize that my problems cause my doubts. I imagine John the Baptist had heard of other people who had been imprisoned or falsely accused by Herod or Rome. That was not uncommon in their world. But John didn't lose faith over those people. He probably prayed for them and maybe preached about them and visited them in prison. But now he's in prison and his doubt is overwhelming. Is he the one? I'm having my doubts. Jesus' response is very interesting. What I wish he would have done is said, you know what, I, I didn't really think about this, but you're right, and you know, I'm going to do a miracle, and the gates of the prison will fall over, and John, you can come out. Just, I'm going to fix it. Or if at least if he didn't fix it, if he would have said, um, you know, John, let me, let me kind of tell you how this is all going to work out. I mean, sometimes for me, honestly, I don't expect God to fix everything, but I wish he'd explain it to me. I mean, just, just kind of help me understand the big picture. What are you doing and how are things working? And, and you know, uh, give, give me the insights of what, what's going on in this thing. Because if I know what's going on and I know how you're working, then it'll be okay. I can deal with it. But that's not what he does. John's disciples come to Jesus and Jesus doesn't say, you know, you're right, we're going to fix this thing. So tonight, prison break. 
And he doesn't say, you know what, okay, let me, let me fill you in. Here's what's going on. Let me give you the big picture. And the reason he got arrested is how this plays a part in this thing. And here's how he's going to be rewarded later on. Jesus doesn't explain to John what, what God is up to. Instead, he does for John exactly what he does for me and exactly what he does for you. Look at verse 4 of Matthew 11. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you see and hear. And John's disciples went, but that wasn't the question. The question was, are you the one? And he says, well, yeah, but go tell him what you see. Okay, but are you the one? I mean, this is a big deal to John. I mean, remember, he's your cousin, by the way. Remember that? And, and uh, he's served you faithfully, and he just wants to know, like, what's going on. He just needs a little help. Go back and report to John what you see and you hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. That's it? I, you're not going to tell us if you're the one, are you? See, what Jesus is saying, and this is huge, and if we don't get anything else, we need to get this. What Jesus is saying is this. I want John's faith fastened not to what's happening to him, but rather to what I'm doing around him. I want John's faith in me fastened not to what's going on to, in his life, but rather what's going on in the world around him. Look outside what's happening to him. See what's happening around him. That's the only way he'll be able to maintain faith in his prison cell. So share with him what you see. So he'll lift his eyes off of his cell and onto what's happening in the world through me. And when he sees that, he'll find the assurance that he needs that I am who I say I am. Why is this so critical? Because when we're in pain, when our life is hard, when it hasn't turned out the way we thought it should, we have the temptation to pray, God, get me out of this, fix it. Or at least, God, help me understand what you're up to. Give me answers. Give me all the why questions answered. And God says, you know what? I'm not going to do that. It's not the way it works. And in fact, you may be in a situation where you'll never understand or see what God is up to in that situation. But he says you can still find faith in the midst of it. How do I do that? Well, number one, when you doubt, you must recapture your memories of God's past faithfulness. See, you remember where God has been working in the past in your life. Remember what God did in your son or your daughter or your parents or your husband or your wife or your finances or that, that job or with that college experience or that, that time he protected you or that time he directed you. You lift your eyes off of the here and now and you see God's activity in your life in the past. Maybe you go back to the beginning and to the cross and the fact he saved you. He was faithful then and you trust he is now. That he has a track record that points to this. And, and though we don't understand and our life stinks sometimes and we have questions and we have doubts and we say, where is God? That we can recapture our memories of God's past faithfulness. We can also look back at the history of the church and history of God's people in his word and realize that we are one of billions of people that have followed and doubted and struggled. And, and, and we can look back at their lives and see that God was working in their life even though at the time they didn't see it. And so maybe he's working in mine even though I don't see it. There's the example of Moses who lived in the wilderness for 40 years, 40 years wondering, is this where I'm gonna end up and die? Grew up in the palace, then in the wilderness. Then God calls him to go get the people of Israel out and he goes and gets them. Then he comes back 40 more years in the wilderness. Man, there's David who lived in caves for 10 years after being, an, after being anointed king, after killing Goliath. Over and over and over and over, we see that God was alive and at work and can be trusted in spite of what we see or don't see or what's going on in our lives. The second thing we can do when we doubt is you must redirect your focus from what's going on to you to what's going on around you. 
You can, you can look around. Get your eyes off of yourself and your circumstances and see the bigger picture. One of the reasons I, uh, we love stories at Hope Church, baptism stories, communitas, our church magazine has stories, our website has stories. We have people get up and share their stories on stage sometimes. It's because every time I hear a story, every time I read a story, I think to myself, there's God. There's God. He's still at work around me in people every day. Because see, sometimes in my life, I don't see it. But I'm reminded when I hear other people's stories that he's there and he's working. It gets my eyes off me and I look and see what God is doing around me. And I'm able to maintain faith even when I don't understand or see any sign that God is there or he cares. When when I doubt, I must redirect my focus from what's going on to me to what's going on around me. I mean, look around. That was Jesus' answer to John. Look around. Don't get so caught up in your own life and your own self in that jail cell you're in. Look around. So after John sends uh, his disciples to Jesus and he asks them, are you the one? And he doesn't answer whether he's the one or not. He just says, look around. Then Jesus says this in uh, Matthew 11, verse 6. He said, blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. You know what that means? It means exceedingly happy, A plus, special credit to the person who doesn't lose faith because of what I do or what I don't do. See, Jesus says, yeah, see, here's the way this is going to work. I'm going to do some stuff that's going to be hard for you to handle. I'm going to ask you as my followers sometimes to, to sacrifice. You're going to have to do some things as a part of being a follower of mine that's going to cost you. And I'm going to ask you to stay faithful even if you cost you something. And there are other times... I'm not going to show up in your life the way you think I should. I mean, there are going to be times that you think to yourself, if God loved me and God was for me, he would do this for me, and I'm not going to do that for you. And you're going to think, then he must not love me. You're going to think those things. But blessed, exceedingly happy is the person who hangs on, who doesn't lose faith because of something I do or don't do. And then look what he says about John the Baptist in Matthew 11, 11. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, which I think is probably most of us. If you weren't born of a woman, let me know later. Um, I tell you the truth, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. But wait a minute, he's a doubter. He had these doubts. He had these questions. Jesus says, that's okay. I don't kick doubters out. I don't mind if you doubt or have questions. John the Baptist, doubt, that's okay. He was the greatest man that ever lived so far, Jesus says. See, I think that's encouraging because I can pick up my doubts and you can pick up your doubts and we can carry them with us. We can doubt when we don't see God working, when we don't know where he is, why he's doing what he's doing. And he doesn't kick me out because of my doubts and my questions. He says, blessed are you when you wrestle with doubts and you hang in there. Well, here's how the story ends. Mark kind of has the longer version of the story. Mark chapter six, verse 21. Finally, the opportune time came On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When when the daughter of Herodias, this would be his stepdaughter, this was Philip and Herodias' daughter, came in and danced, and I I don't think it was ballet, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The the king said to her, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. He's in like a guy frenzy kind of. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And some of you, particularly the ladies, are like, that's stupid. Why would you? But guys, I think probably most of us understand that there are certain kinds of dances that can be done where like, here's my keys, my wallet, my watch. Um, you know, I know it's like nervous laughter, but I think we understand what's going on there. So what do you want? I'll give you half my kingdom. And she says, hold that thought. Verse 24, she went out and said to her mother Herodias, 
what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request. I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, because of, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. Bring, uh, bring in John's head. The man went and beheaded John in prison and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl and she gave it to her mother. On hearing this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. So the front runner of the Messiah, who had faithfully served, who had asked nothing in return, dies alone, degraded in prison because of a rash oath by a guy who was caught up in his own lust and who doesn't have the character to stand up and be a man and do the right thing. That's how John dies. There's no happy ending. There's no answered prayers. There's no here's how God came through. He just dies. And a couple months later, Jesus, another innocent man, dies at the hands of a group of people who also are consumed with the evil of their heart. And he dies directly at the hands of a guy named Pilate who also lacked the strength to do the right thing even though he knew what was right. And Jesus goes to the cross. He didn't want to. He had doubts. He questions. He said, God, let this cup pass from me. But he picked up and he carried his doubts and questions all the way to the cross. And that's what he asks us to do. To believe that God can be trusted and believed in and followed. And the death of John the Baptist and then of Jesus was the beginning of a spiritual revolution that covers now the face of the earth. And billions have followed in the last two millennia. And today we still worship a risen Savior and talk of the courage of John the Baptist who followed even when he didn't understand and had doubts and questions and God didn't show up in the way he thought he would and he lost everything, even his life. But he believed God is faithful even in the midst of death. So the question for you and for me is not, are we gonna doubt? We will have doubts. It is, what are we gonna do with those doubts? And to begin with, we have to consider the options. To whom, to what shall we go? And then we pick up our doubts and our questions and we follow. And we recapture the memories of God's past faithfulness and we redirect our focus to what's going on, uh, from what's going on to us to what's going on around us. And you will find faith in the midst of your doubts. And we need to remember the promise of Jesus. Blessed are you, blessed are you, exceedingly happy are you if you don't lose faith because of me. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, 